Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Dr. Jennifer Frey from the University of South Carolina and the Institute for Human Ecology. Dr. Frey, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to be here. We are recording this uh, shortly before Earth Day, which I suppose is kind of a tangential connection to uh, what we're going to be talking about today, which has to do with human ecology. Mm-hmm. Which I think when people hear that, I don't know if this is your experience when you're introducing the notion of human ecology to people, but I think their first instinct is to think that it has something to do with environmental sustainability or the extinction of species or something like that. Is that what the phrase has meant as it's been used by, say, recent popes? Well, I think it's kind of a more general term, mm-hmm. right? And questions of sustainability and an appropriate relationship with nature and care for creation are going to fall under what it means to have a human ecology, but it's so much broader and more general and more capacious than that. So I'm a fellow in the Institute for Human Ecology, and I'm also a a media fellow for them. And so I did some media training in D.C., and the media guys were like, what's with this human ecology stuff? <laughs> they were they were like, what, what is this about? And, you know, so we were we were kind of trying to explain it. And I mean, for me, just drawing on, you know, papal encyclicals and the way that, for example, John Paul II uses the term in his encyclical Centissimus Annus, which is like a reflection back on Rerum Navarum, the great encyclical by Leo XIII that inaugurated what we call Catholic social teaching, you know, he's clearly talking about something that is so broad that it even encompasses political economy. So when we talk about human ecology, I think we are, first of all, invoking a notion of nature that is much broader than anything that Earth Day is going to celebrate. Right. It's, it's not just about old growth forests and right. like what happens in the jungle and that kind of thing. Right. Although that's important, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it turns out that if we completely destroy the rainforest, then we are putting human life and human society in peril, right? Mm-hmm. So that does matter but it's too reductive, right? So when we talk about a human ecology, I think we're talking about the conditions broadly understood in which we can understand human flourishing. Of course, we would be talking about the environment because we're animals, (laughs) we're embodied animals, we're not angels, and we need certain things to live and to preserve ourselves in our embodied nature. Yeah, it comes with the territory. Yeah, but it would also include our social, moral, and political environment and relate that back to the more physical or biological account. So I think it's very broad. And I also think it's pretty clear that it's a concept that's coming out of the church's understanding of nature, which is tied to its understanding of natural law. There, the basic idea is that we were created by God with a certain nature. In our case, we are made in the image of God. And that means that we have a specifically rational nature. 
We're specifically rational kind of animal. And this nature is given to us. This nature is given ordained, right, to an end, you know, and we have our kind of natural flourishing, our flourishing in this life. But like our ultimate end, which is ordained in our nature, is to uh, be with God and to participate in God's eternal life. And so this idea of the natural law and obeying the precepts of the natural law, which are self-evident to us as rational creatures, doing that in flourishing as the kind of thing that we are, we are participating in God's eternal law, right? Which Mm -hmm. is God's providential ordering of creation. And so that sense of nature and Catholic social teaching always carries with it this deeper notion of creation and this notion of participation, right? That in um, living in accordance with nature, we are participating in God's eternal law. That is the specifically Catholic way of looking at it. And again, we do that when we think and act and behave and react morally in accordance with the moral law. And under that, includes things that are tied to our embodied nature, you know? So like the church's teachings about the family are very much tied to the kind of animal that we are and and grows out of that. There's a quote from the encyclical you mentioned from John Paul II uh, in section 37. Man who discovers his capacity to transform and in a certain sense create the world through his own work forgets that this is always based on God's prior and original gift of the things that are. Man thinks that he can make arbitrary use of the earth, subjecting it without restraint to his will, as though it did not have its own requisites and a prior God-given purpose. Right. So that's sort of kind of one of the big anchoring points of what you're talking about that he provides in that encyclical. Right. And it can be difficult to articulate a properly Catholic understanding of what, let's just call it environmentalism, Mm -hmm. because... What you find very often or what I have found personally in um, environmental movements is you find a hostility to (laughs) reproduction. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of kind of weird Malthusian stuff going on where they think that, well, the problem is that people are just, there are just too many people, right? And so we all need to contracept and stop having kids or only have one kid. And of course, that's all deeply... (laughs) It's all deeply wrong and anti-Catholic because um, it's a violation of of the natural law and the church's teaching on human sexuality. But it's also just so myopic. I mean, the idea that, you know, Catholic families are the catastrophe or large families are the catastrophe instead of, say, multinational corporations that are... (laughs) you know, systematically cutting down the rainforest and stuff like this. I mean, it's just a very strange point of view, and yet it's very common. So I think another thing that JP2 is saying there is that what you find in modernity, but especially in the late 19th century and the 20th century, is you have this turn to thinking that we, we just kind of construct everything, right? There's no moral reality to be discovered. That's part of nature. It's all projection or construction. And so we either construct well or poorly. There's no meaning in the thing except what we ascribe to it. Exactly. 
And how could there be meaning in in nature? Because it's all just matter in motion, right? There's no final causality. You know, um, it's all metaphysics of efficient causation. It's all just so much matter in motion. And so any meaning, value, or purpose is just a projection or a construction. And the Pope is saying no. Right. That's that's a false understanding of nature. And if you have a false understanding of nature, then you're not going to you're not really going to understand human ecology. And this is another quote from Sintasimus Anas. He says, we must respect the natural and moral structure with which we have been endowed. Right. There is something real there that has to be known, acknowledged and obeyed, respected. Right. And that is something that is no longer a popular view, to put it mildly, but I, I think it's very true. I'm a moral philosopher and I'm, you know, a realist. Like, I believe that moral knowledge is grounded in reality and it's something that we can know and it's independent of us. And I think maybe the motive that people might have some some of the time for adopting that sort of rejection of you know, real meaning in the world is that they think that if there is an objective meaning in the, you know, this or that aspect of reality, then that is somehow like competing with my, my agency or my Mm -hmm. selfhood, right? Yeah. Your autonomy, your precious autonomy. Yeah, exactly. And not (laughs) providing the, the very framework and the groundwork that my autonomy depends on. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, people talk about breaking down walls, but they, but they rarely ever talk about how those walls are holding up the roof over your head. Exactly. And I think a lot of people are living under this sense of like, they don't, you know, there aren't any boundaries. And it turns out that's actually really bad for people. And it creates like a lot of depression and anxiety, which is what we see everywhere. The depression and anxiety that you're referring to, or if you want to like talk about like postmodern uh, malaise, you know, it mm-hmm. it is kind of directly related to industrialization or post-industrial. Like the wealthier and yeah, more, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, wealthier like the wealthier people are, the more, the more anxiety they have. Right, yeah, the wealthier, right? the more industrialized and the more, I don't know, maybe sometimes urbanized a culture is, you know, the level of anxiety increases almost directly. Yeah, I mean, Walker Percy, who's a Catholic novelist, Mm -hmm. you know, he's really brilliant on this. He's, all of his novels are kind of dealing with this, the sense of malaise that wealthy, educated, totally comfortable people feel. It's like, it's like I have everything. And yet, like, there's this giant hole in the middle of my life where like meaning and purpose is supposed to be. This is supposed to be my self-actualization. And this is all there is. Yeah. I don't think he uses a term like that, but that's kind of how he... Well, he does talk a lot about self-transcendence and distinguishes between true and false self-transcendence. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he sort of thinks like, it turns out that people who have their material needs met and people who don't like really suffer (laughs) physically in any way are some of the most miserable people Mm -hmm. you will ever encounter. Because they just, they don't know what they're doing in like some very deep existential sense. They don't know who they are or where they're going or what their place is in the cosmos. JP2 also talks in that same document about urban planning. He kind of just touches on it. But it seems Mm -hmm. like maybe an example of what he's talking about when man is making arbitrary use of the earth and sort of imposing his will 
over against it. Because if you live in an urban setting like I do in Washington, D.C., your surroundings reflect more human will rather than the world as it is as it's given to us mm-hmm. prior to our will. And I think people who spend a lot of time in cities who spend very little time, you know, quote unquote, touching grass, as the kids say, it's easier for them to lose sight of that because everything you interact with is a product of human will and is not this sort is not a creature in, or is not apparently a creature in the same way. Um, and it mm-hmm. sort of makes you forget that you yourself are a creature and not a product of your own will. I think that there's definitely something to that. I think that people who live in urban environments, and I live in an urban environment too, although a much smaller one than you do. And it's easier for me. It's actually like really easy for me to get out in nature. I can get to the mountains pretty quickly. I can get to the beach pretty quickly. I can get to the swamps pretty quickly. (laughs) And um, But I do think that urban environments tend to a level of distraction and forgetfulness. And again, this is something that I think Walker Percy is like really brilliant about just this sense of constantly being constantly being swept up in the here and now and not not really having opportunities to cultivate habits of contemplation, whether we're contemplating art or nature or philosophy right? Those are all activities in which we're getting out of the busyness of the everyday world. And we're focusing our attention on something that really transcends all of that, whether that's through beauty or truth or goodness, whatever transcendental we're after. And that's a crucial part of the moral life. It's a crucial part of the spiritual life you know, if you if you want to separate those two categories. And I think that urban dwellers, you know, have to have to be intentional about creating space for that in the way that people in rural environments don't have to. Yeah. We're not saying it's wrong to live in a city. It just takes extra effort to retain that sense of humanity. Yeah. I mean, I think there look, I mean, I I love, I'm very much an urban dweller, but I just think that you have to get real about what the temptations are in that environment. And I think that temptations to distraction and forgetfulness are the two biggest ones. One thing you were hinting at, which uh, JP2 also talks about in paragraph 39 of Chintesi Masanas, the first and fundamental structure for human ecology is the family, in which man receives his first formative ideas about truth and goodness and learns what it means to love and to be loved, and thus what it actually means to be a person. Yeah. And that loss of that sense of the family is another angle on this that I think might, might provide a way to help us understand how human ecology can be applied, not just in a general sense, like how we as a species interact with our surroundings, but on an individual level that this notion of human ecology can apply on the individual level as well. It's not surprising that he would bring up the family, right? Um, The three necessary societies are the family, the state, and the church. And, you know, it all starts with the family because the family is the place where we are habituated and we're either habituated well or poorly, right? You know, this is something that is a constant in the Catholic intellectual tradition, but really just in the Western intellectual tradition, you know, this recognition that we're creatures of habit and we're either going to have good habits or bad habits. And we have to cultivate 
the proper habits of thinking, of reasoning, of imagining, of perceiving, of feeling, and of acting. So it really is the cultivation of the of the whole person. And that begins, from, I mean, that begins from the very beginning in the family. Now, the family, although it's absolutely critical, cannot in and of itself overpower the culture, right? And so the state and the culture in which the family is situated is also going to matter. And then, of course, the church. <laughs> and we understand the family as, as the domestic church. And parents, Catholic parents, have certain obligations to teach their children the faith. And that would all bear very directly on creating a proper human ecology. I mean, it's going to permeate like every aspect of life. Yeah. And within the family, I kind of get the sense, we talked about this recently with Mary Eberstadt about isolation and individualism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sort of eroding family connections. And I think maybe that, maybe that term eroding is apt because erosion is talked about in an ecological setting too. And it's not, mm -hmm. there is kind of an analogy there where this sort of interrelationship or this, this dependency of, you know, one individual on another is not something that is foreign to us or incidental. It's part of who we are. And kind of the increasing isolation that we are experiencing just in the internet age and as a result of COVID and for other reasons as well uh, that we went into a couple episodes ago is sort of moving people to, to forget that part of what they are depends on being part of a family. And if for whatever reason the family is wounded or, you know, separated, that's not the ideal. That That's a wound that should be acknowledged. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre has this great book called Dependent Rational Animals. And mm. he talks a lot about the virtues of mutual dependence. And, and of course, he's writing very explicitly in the natural law tradition. But his whole point is that and really, the proper study of virtue, what you see is that we're not actually, first and foremost, autonomous individuals. In fact, like, we're almost never that. Right. And so it's interesting that we have constructed, like, our entire government out of this idea that, first and foremost, and fundamentally, we're autonomous individuals. Like, it's just false, right? It's just not true. Um, you don't even become, there's no chance, no chance of becoming a reasoner of any kind, good or bad, on your own. You are habituated into forms and practices that shape your practical reasoning. You can't do it if you don't see other people do it. And if those other people don't reason with you. Absolutely. Well, how are you going to get a language? You don't get it on your own. You, you don't. I mean, this is like a demonstrable fact. You don't get it on your own. And this is really getting again at this idea of human ecology as, I mean, almost really like an ecosystem, right? Like if you think about a plant or an animal, it can be doing great on its own, but of course it's never going to flourish if its ecosystem gets messed up. Yeah. And similarly, no matter how strong any single family is, if they're operating in social conditions that are like anti-family, right? So if parents don't have control over their children's education or, you know, they, they're not allowed to teach their children the faith or something like this, you know, this is kind of a destruction 
of the ecosystem, right? That is going to make flourishing either really difficult or practically impossible. And so again, when we talk about a human ecology, we're talking about everything from good laws, good institutions, good practices to a viable natural environment. It really includes all of that. My conversation with Dr. Frey lasted a lot longer, so for the rest of our talk about human ecology, be sure to stick around for our next episode. And we are back with Kara Bach. Kara, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Karen, my pollen allergies are back, which means there must be a Marvel movie coming out soon. Indeed. In advance of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, we're talking about the previous entry, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which came out in 2017, directed by James Gunn, and starring many people that you all are probably very familiar with, Chris Pratt, Zoe Saldana, and Kurt Russell as Ego the Living Planet. Which was a bit of a a bit of an adventurous take for Marvel's uh, Marvel's villains up to that point. Um, we haven't talked a lot about MCU movies in the podcast, which I'm generally okay with. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think we're, we're like missing very much for our purposes, but this movie in particular, I think, has a, has an interesting perspective on family and particularly fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. Now, Kara, did you have any experience with this movie? No, so full disclosure, I am very late to the Marvel game. So like before Endgame came out, which is where Good Brad and I met, like yeah. my husband knew you. So I binge watched like the essentials so that I could understand the movie. And now I've been like backfilling the other ones. So I only recently caught up on Guardians of the Galaxy. I watched one and two together so that, well, first of all, I heard that one is better than two and I have to agree with that. Oh, man. Also, <laughs> it felt like it got some backstory. And I, I we're talking about two, but I feel like it's interesting. You get the sense in the first movie, though, that like the Guardians of the Galaxy series. What is the yeah. what is it? What's the term of yeah, the like? I think you can say world? series. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like like the theme is family, right? Because it's not just about Star-Lord and and his dad and his mom, which like that's obviously front and center from like the opening scene. But there's also the relationship between Gamora and her quote unquote father, Thanos, adopted yeah. father, yeah, forced adopted forced father, fa- yeah, Thanos, her like quote unquote sister, and like their relationship as siblings. I mean, even Drax has this you know deep love for his late wife and daughter. So like all of these. There's a, it feel like the whole central motivating theme of the series is really about love and f- like familial love in particular. And like trying to cobble together some sort of really a found family in the wake of prior familial bonds being either utterly severed or extremely dysfunctional. Mm. And, you know, at the beginning of this movie, first of all, I kind of forgot how dumb this... I don't remember the movie being this dumb. (laughs) Or at least like (laughs) in the first half, I guess. But everybody seems like just like a miserable postmodern secular, right? You know, Gamora hates her foster sister. Rocket hates everything. Drax is like unmoored from reality in a fun way. More fun than your than your average postmodern. The only one who prompts like caring relationships at the beginning of this movie, like actual caring relationships, uh, is Baby Groot, 
Uh, but even then, he's just kind of an accessory or team mascot or whatever. Though, uh, okay, so Kara, on a scale of from one to Baby Yoda, how cute was the whole like Baby Groot situation for you? I think I might prefer Groot to Baby Yoda. Okay. Like, okay, I think Baby Yoda is cute, but he's also like, he like ate when they were transporting a bunch of like little eggs. He like ate half of them. I'm like, oh, that was really, that was not cool. Eggs of sentient <laughs> frog people. Like, I think this is supposed to be funny and it's just really, really morbid actually. Yeah, because like, I, get, I mean, Baby Groot has like a complicated gastronomic antagonism with like bugs and little creatures, but they're they're not people, right? Like they're yeah. they're just like pests. It's gross, but it's not potentially murder. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very it's a different dynamic. I also feel like he's just a little bit more genuinely like he he really cares about him. I feel like Baby Yoda it took a little while for him to maybe admit that he had some feelings for. Mandalorian. It was a little unclear about his emotional capacity. I feel like Groot, Groot's a feeler. Yeah. Groot's like, he's a little baby. <laughs> I mean, are you a Groot fan? I, Let's, uh... I was I was very charmed this time around. Like every time he like sort of holds out his arms expecting to be picked up. Um, oh, that was so very cute. And I, I think he has like a nice relationship with each individual person on the team. Mm. So that was, that was very fun. Like he, he sort of treats Drax as a punching bag to get out his angst and He's like waving hi to Gamora at the beginning, just for no reason. That was funny. Yeah, it was very cute. As a person with a 15-month-old, the like, hi, is such a thing. <laughs> yeah, so that was very cute. And that like, that definitely makes the group more, it humanizes them, makes them more sympathetic. Because they're, I mean, with the, the rest of their relationships at the beginning, they're all pretty much just bickering all the time. And their kind of unsatisfying lives provide an opportunity for the character played by Kurt Russell, Ego, to enter and offer some kind of greater connection, or at least the, the appearance of a greater connection to Chris Pratt's character, the main character, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, who is his, you know, long lost father, who is not human, who is this celestial with cosmic powers and has built this whole planet around him and this, this human body projection that makes him able to like relate to regular people. And to, like to Quill's credit, he doesn't really buy it at first, which I think is it sort of makes the saccharine stuff like a little bit easier because he has to first be skeptical because it's like it sounds too good to be true. Well, especially when he's been gone for so long. <laughs> yeah, right. He, this is the first time he's met him and he's like 30 years old. 34, I believe they say. in the, oh, okay. uh... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. As has to be the case, the like needle drop musical cues in this movie are on point. I mean, the music is definitely what like makes these movies. I mean, they have a good chemistry going for them. There's like plenty of things I think that I would have changed even given that they had the kind of budget that they had. I think a little more restraint would have been helpful <laughs> in the CGI, but... They spared no expense on the soundtrack and it was well worth it. Yeah, the pirate parts of the movie really could have been dialed back with very little, very little lost. <laughs> yeah, this movie could stand to lose about 35 or 40 minutes yeah. and have no, no consequences to the storyline whatsoever. <laughs> Even the first time I saw it, and I, I really liked this movie the first time I saw it. Even then, though, I thought the all the pirate stuff with Yondu, his like Peter Quill's other foster father who like sort of took him into a captivity and made him mm. raised him as a pirate. And threatened to eat him, but apparently was just kidding. Like, I didn't think Yondu, like, had any reason to be in this movie until, like, the last 10 minutes, basically. Yeah, I agree. There could have been a lot less. 
And that's why they have to go through this whole rigmarole of showing like this whole Yandu subplot with the pirate mutiny and everything. Well, speaking of Yandu, I think the the movie makes no pretense that it's about anything other than father wounds. Yeah. <laughs> and like, they're like, truly, there's like very little other subplot. It's like, look, your dad abandoned you. You find him. He turns out to be a god. <laughs> little G, little G god, god. planet yeah, little, thing. A celestial, as they say. What do you think about the like emotional journey that Peter goes on? I think that's the most compelling part of this movie. And if we're going to put this movie on any kind of like serious terms as more than just a silly comic book movie uh, with a, you know, a cartoon raccoon. I think this is, this is the angle that like, this is the reason we're doing an episode on it because Peter and his relationship with his rock and 80s space dad, which from his perspective, he would kind of want to believe and the fact that it's like too good to be true initially is why he's skeptical of it. But when he buys in, he really buys in. And he's like, this is great. This is everything I've ever wanted. And not only that, but I'm not just human anymore. I'm special in some sort of like biological cosmic way, mm. I think is a really cool sci-fi kind of way of examining egotism in masculine relationships and wanting to sort of create the world in your own image, mm. which is, spoiler alert, the villain's big plan. Ego turns out to be the bad guy, and his plan is to, with his son, recreate the universe in his image. It stems from this feeling of, like, aloneness that Ego had as this inexplicable, like, space brain just kind of floating out in the ether. And, like, you get a little glimpse of him talking about how alone he was at the beginning. And then from there, sort of spreading his tentacles out because he's like in search of meaning. And that search for meaning, I think is, I don't know, maybe relatable from a secular perspective, like not having it and trying mm. to find it or attain it or achieve it or whatever. And among Marvel villains, that's a cool place to come from. Yeah. Even for Catholics, like I think most people... Even if you know on an intellectual level that you're like a child of God, truly finding your like day-to-day -day purpose in life through that is a challenge most of us have for our entire lives. It's like a cross we continually pick up. And the idea that like you need to do something with your life, even if it's like, I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. I feel like that is like a deep human need that's very relatable I think it's one of those where it's like the obvious wrong here is that ego eventually sees his purpose as like himself. Yeah. And I, the thing I've always found interesting about Marvel movies in general is that ultimately it has a very classical kind of understanding of good and evil, even if it's not rooted in a Christian worldview. Like, spoiler alert, if you've never seen Endgame and, you know, the whole like ending of the Avengers series, like Thanos gets rid of a bunch of people with the idea of like, this will make the world better. But that's clearly viewed as evil that he is just killing a bunch of people because he's got like some other higher goal. Nobody else ever really agrees with him. Exactly. It's just assumed that like this is a terrible thing to want, which I think it would be easy today for somebody to say like, of course, that's a good goal because and it saves the planet or whatever. So it's interesting that kind of like baked in sort of classical morality that I think is just taken for granted. And I think is on display here in the sense that like 
making yourself the end goal is obviously evil in itself, but also because it means it subsumes everybody else into it. It makes a relationship like impossible. Yeah. You see that at the end where Peter Quill has decided to oppose Ego's plan, but Ego still needs him for like energy. He calls him a battery at one point. So he literally like impales him on a on an electro tentacle because he's just going to force Peter Quill to go along with the plan. It's extraordinarily distorted and abusive. I mean, it's the definition of utilitarian. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the thing that makes Ego more than just a cartoon villain is the fact that where he's coming from is sympathetic, at least from certain perspectives in our culture. Like the idea of creating your own meaning in life is something that a lot of people buy into and that a lot of ad campaigns and other stories that are told, you know, genuinely believe. And this is, I think Ego is painting a picture of what it looks like when you follow that to its logical conclusion. I think it's significant that he he sort of comes from the 80s a little bit because like the this kind of macho 80s were kind of the high point for a certain kind of American masculinity mm. where, you know, men could pretty much, you know, get away with whatever they wanted to <laughs> in a certain respect. You know, the sexual revolution was kind of at a low tide at that point. Men could, you know, sow their wild oats and, you know, enjoy all sorts of like professional and personal benefits with with very little accountability. I mean, like casual sexualization of women, yep. which felt like strangely out of place in this movie, or maybe just like this, or maybe not this one. The first movie is 10 years old. And it's just very strange where they've got like so many like butt shots on Gamora. I'm like, this is just weird. Oh, yeah. This <laughs> is like, this is kind of a pre Me Too movie. Yeah, for sure. Like lots of casual references to like sleeping around with lots of women. I'm like, it just feels strange. But it speaks to that like ego as a, a villain who's maybe not like, I don't know if he's sympathetic, but it's a real temptation, I think, that has... There's a version of ego that has the veneer of kind of a moral ideal mm. of, you know, whatever, believing in yourself or there is no meaning except the meaning that we imprint on the world. Yeah. And he's wrong. <laughs> but I don't know if the movie, <laughs> kind of similar to our Everything Everywhere All at Once. I was thinking the same pod, I'm not sure if the movie articulates a good counter argument against ego's point. It's funny you say that. I, I was thinking similarly about Everything Everywhere All at Once because... I think the movie is basically, and the series is saying that family is incredibly important. And so like choosing your family can fill that hole that you have, which I don't have an issue with that message. It's fine. But it feels like similar to everything everywhere. It's it's just like lacking the correct sort of backbone and like structure around like why that's true. It's not just because you like chose them it's like, it's given that family is important. And like, that's just the moral of the story is like family is important and you can choose your own family. All the good moral, like the high moral things that come from like having selfless love for others is all considered good. But obviously as Christians, it's like, right. But like, why is that true? It's because it's been modeled for us by God the Father. And like, of course, that is absent here. Yeah. And and there is a father figure who models the this movie's answer, like Yondu saying, mm. I don't I don't fly the arrow with my head, son. I fly with my heart. And that's mm. him sort of inspiring Peter to like look into his heart for the reason to fight back against ego. And you see the little the little flashback thing to, you know, Peter remembering all the good times with the, you know, with all his friends. I think the implication, correct me if I'm wrong, is like 
I feel very strongly about these people, therefore I will fight for them. I don't want to make it sound like these are not real and true things. Like they obviously are. We have family bonds, we have community, and these are extremely important things. And so I I think the movie gets that right in the sense that like that is a very deep human need and that our existence as humans is not about our personal pinnacle achievement. You know, I think even as Christians, we would say like rarely is God calling somebody to purely like achieve financially or in a very like in a way that would be very single-mindedly self-oriented. Like that's just not the way that God has created us. Yeah. And so I think that that the movie gets that right, that like family and community are a deep source of meaning in your life and a driving force. Yeah. I think this movie is trying to say they're your family because you feel strongly about them Mm. and not because of the objective existing relationship, not because of who they are in themselves, but because of how you feel about them. And that's where I feel like this movie's answer, if it is this movie's answer, is not satisfactory. Because like Mm. ego feels strongly about things. That doesn't make him right. Yeah, I guess I didn't feel like it was it was just about feelings. Okay. In a way, like the fact that they're bickering is like, I think a shorthand for in a sort of like siblingy way where it's like you might fight with your siblings, but like you're also going to go to the mat for them. There's like this they, underlying family, bedrock like, connection. Yeah. You know, I think it, sure, it's arbitrary here. Like they start off in like friendships of need and then it sort of elevates into friendships of choice as opposed, I mean, you know, I wouldn't say that they have a friendship of virtue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's certainly not like insubstantial. It's the only other thing. It's just like his relationship with his mom and the fact that like, in a way, you know, it was really ego saying that he gave the mom brain cancer that tipped Peter over the edge. Yeah. And (laughs) there's a pretty immediate reaction, like an immediate turn there. Peter is maybe on his dad's side until his dad says he intentionally gave the mom cancer so he wouldn't be like too attached to her to carry out his plan. And Peter immediately switches and like starts shooting ego (laughs) on turns on a dime (laughs) because the mom wound always takes priority for him. Yeah. Well, the mom was the one who raised him and he, you know, had this deep relationship with her, which is very genuine. Yeah. And I think that that is also included in the like the happy memory flashback sequence, too. There's like Mm. one or two shots of him as a kid with his mom. Yeah. Yeah. That I think to your point about it not being so emotionalistic. That that sort of supports your point there because like it's never just an emotional thing with being brought up by your mom, right? That's existential. <laughs> Who died when you were young and then you're abducted by some like alien group that <laughs> <laughs> abducted by space pirates as often happens to orphans. Yeah. Um but yeah, ego, Hall of Fame bad dad. Unrivaled. It's weird. I, I have this strange sense that pop culture in general has sort of been gravitating away from biological parents and in favor of kind of found family and adoptive parents. I don't know what's behind that exactly. I think maybe it's just the the emphasis on choice, maybe, and biological parents not being chosen must mean that they're bad. So we come up with these reasons why they're bad. My hunch is that, well, I mean, our generation, you know, being we're what, millennials in our 30s, uh, there's a lot of people who are the product of divorce. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of people where like their parents probably weren't 
amazing parents or, you know, things that were like deeply wounding in those kinds of situations where I think it's really hard as someone who's like been through a lot of therapy and not because like my parents were bad parents, but just like there's things that sometimes you have to work through or like our parents did not have the benefit of the internet or therapy for themselves. So, you know, there's like certainly things to be worked through, but I think it's really difficult to do the work of forgiving your family for any shortcomings or wounds that may have been intentional or unintentionally inflicted upon you as a child. And I think because that's really hard and because there are so many unhealthy families that we see, I think the easy out is to be like, well, a found family who will affirm you is the way to get what you needed from your family. Because you do have like very deep-seated needs from your parents. And when those are not met, it's a lot easier, I guess, to just be like, these people who I have similar interests in and they support me and validate me, like this is what I wanted for my parents. Even though like that is also like not a healthy model of what a parental relationship is. Like when we look to things that Christ tells us, it's like, yeah, it's pretty clear that God is not just like telling you that everything you do is great. And you know, there's like the idea of sin being like, you have to actually recognize your sin and repent and make amends. And like the, that idea in general means that like your parents are not always validating everything that you do. They're teaching you how to be a virtuous person. Yeah, And I feel like because even the meaning of what parents are supposed to do has been lost People are looking for the emotional support part that they didn't get, but not accepting any of the corrective measures that also come along. We actually talked about that in the first segment in talking about human ecology, where John Paul II talks about how like the family is the primary place where human ecology is lived out and how how the human person is taught by their parents, like what it means to be a person, like what it means to be loved and to love. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's that's exactly what you're saying. We don't always get a connection between the first and second segments on the show. <laughs> so it's nice when it happens. We'll take it. So, I mean, I guess that's my two cents on it is like, you have a very wounded, I won't even say a generation, like several generations. And I think on top of it, societally, we are much more of a narrative of acceptance and unconditional acceptance, all good and bad in a way that I think we as Christians would recognize is unhealthy. No, I think I think those are those are good observations and the 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 widespread woundedness that is sort of making this resonate with people is an important point not to gloss over. So thank you. Well I think Kara's own daughter is up from her nap and is in need <laughs> of experiencing some of that human ecology. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so I think we can we can wrap it up there. Kara, I know you're not going to be uh, seeing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in theaters or anything, but did this make you want to see it eventually? Oh, no, I do. I like really want to know what happens now. I'm like, once I'm into a series, like I need to actually see it through. So okay. take my money, Marvel. Fine. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe depending on how the movie pans out, maybe we'll we'll circle back to that one. Indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Please share this podcast with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs>